0: Hey friends, I'm Jer Swigart, co-founder of the Global Immersion Project. Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking podcast and our first ever bonus season called Restoring Friendship. Everyday peacemakers are women and men who are joining God and one another in making all things new. We're people who are learning to see more accurately, immerse more courageously and contend more creatively. Over the past decade, the Global Immersion team has had the privilege of accompanying thousands of American Christians and faith leaders in their journey toward becoming everyday peacemakers. Our conviction is that restoration is the mission of God, making peacemaking not an add-on to our faith, but the very essence of it. Our view of conflict is that it's inevitable, of injustice is that it's real, and that in all of its forms, it seeks to diminish the image of God in another. Both conflict and injustice play out internally, that's within us, interpersonally, that's between us, and systemically, that's within the infrastructure that seeks to organize us. While everyday peacemaking necessarily includes systemic change, it also involves the hard, slow work of becoming more whole, healthy, integrated individuals who are savvy at navigating hard conversations, mending interrupted relationships, and bridging difference into new ones. Put another way, the road to social transformation only ever goes by way of internal and interpersonal peacemaking. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've observed that differing perspectives on faith, politics, race, and even vaccinations have caused many to terminate relationships with family, friends, neighbors, and colleagues. It seems that our ability to navigate hard conversations to interrupted relationships and bridge differences into new friendships has degenerated. It's as though we're all aware of the fractured relationships in our lives, but many of us don't know how to restore the friendships. Our hunch is that the work of interpersonal peacemaking may be among the most radical and worthwhile efforts of our time. In fact, it may be the very embodiment of the way of love that Jesus is inviting us into. That's the hunch that drove us to create and facilitate the Restoring Friendship webinar series this spring. In this five-part webinar series, we invited five global peacemakers to reflect on how they prioritize relationships, tend to interrupted friendships, and build uncommon alliances. Throughout the spring, five of our global peacemaking friends and colleagues opened up their lives and shared with us how they do the hard, slow work of restoring friendship. In this episode, we hear from Irish poet and peacemaker Padraig Othuma, who focused on the power of language to restore broken relationships, and provided conversational tools for disarming everyday conflict. Here's Padraig.
1: Well, hi, Darren. Hi, everybody. I am, My name is Padraig Tuama and I'm in Ireland, and um, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk together about these important things. Um, I am from a country that has a long history of being invaded, where <laughs> religion and language here was um, was treated by people who were not from here in ways that were seeking to control that, and ways within which politics and religion became intertwined, and ways within which also the oppressed majority um had to recognise and are doing so slowly. The fact that the oppressed majority in Ireland also were capable of terrible terror. Um, and we always have to remind the um, the coloniser that colonisation is not just something, a fact of history. It was acts of war making throughout centuries. It isn't just something that Britain can go, oh, you know, Britain and Ireland are lovely now. Empire comes with deaths that last for centuries. And so... Um, Yeah, I suppose I'm formed religiously, linguistically, politically by the reality of being Irish in Ireland now with the responsibilities that that brings as well as with the awareness of how to have civic conversations about peace between Britain and Ireland in a way that is building towards peace um, rather than causing unnecessary aggression.
0: And I know that um, part of of your work for maybe five or so years, has been connected to the Coromila community. I know that there are a number listening in um, who are familiar with Coromila, and a number that aren't. I've heard you mm. refer to Coromila in the past as a, a space, a soft space for hard conversations. Uh, mm. h- how would you describe uh, how would you describe Coromila now and, and the work that they're doing with regard to peacemaking and reconciliation? Yeah,
1: well, Carmilla is um, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation, started by a Presbyterian clergyman in 1965. It's a physical location where lots of work happens, but also their staff will go out into communities and schools and work, um, consult w- more widely in, across Ireland, um, not just at our centre. So I suppose there's a kind of a a number of about 10,000 people a year come through our work, whether coming through the centre or being affected through the work we do in schools or indirectly through the work we do in training teachers. And the aim really is to find ways to have difficult conversations about the things that divide us and to look at what are the skills involved in making a difficult conversation creative. It isn't to say the difficult conversation is ever going to be easy. Um, and we're also not interested in people agreeing with each other necessarily, because peace isn't only built when people agree with each other. In fact, some of the most necessary areas of peace is where people won't and don't agree with each other. And if we are only imagining that peace can be built in common ground, well, then we're screwed. Mm. So the hope really is, is that we can find ways where people can feel Um, equipped and creative and confident in that mix between interpersonal warmth as well as the capacity to ask questions that you might not have thought you could ask of the person who's in front of you. Mm. Um, So yeah, I I came on as Poet-in-Residence at Coramila in about 2005 and was officially at times, unofficially at times, paid sometimes, volunteer and other times Poet-in-Residence associated with Coramila for about nine years. And then from 2014 to 2019, I led Corimela. So and I'm still a member. So
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and give us a little update on how you're spending your life now.
1: <laughs> um, in poetry. So I mean, poetry is my first love, really. I suppose I'm particularly interested in language, and poetry for me is the most exciting exploration of language. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, poetry, conflict and theology for me are all explorations of language. So I um, work with On Being and present the Poetry Unbound podcast, which there's two seasons a year and where we take a single poem and do a deep dive into a single poem, not just for poets, but for anybody who thinks, oh, I'd like to like poetry, but maybe I'm not sure how or I, I, I enjoyed the poetry I studied, but I wouldn't know where to begin now. So that this, this this podcast is a support in that way by taking a single poem and taking a deep dive into it. I'm also theologian on staff with On Being. I do a little bit of work with the Larsh community. I'm continuing with Corimila as a member and various project involvements there. I'm doing a PhD in poetry and theology. Um, yeah, so
0: just just this or that, hey, just few things. Uh... Just a few yep. things. One one last thing, form the form of introduction. And we're, and we're gonna have uh friends, we're gonna have resources for um for all of these, uh all of these endeavors that Padraig is talking about right now um for you to access. But but uh you've also recently released a book that uh that oh, you yeah. and I got to chat about last mm-hmm. Friday. Uh talk to us a little bit about borders and belonging.
1: Well, in 2016, the um the UK government held a thing called the Brexit referendum, Um, and that was to decide whether or not the United Kingdom would or wouldn't remain part of the European Union. Um, And that set about a whole series of crises um, for people in England, Scotland and Wales, but particularly for people in Ireland in a very particular way because the peace agreement in Ireland 23 years ago was built on an understanding of both jurisdictions in Ireland, the Republic and the North, both jurisdictions being undergirded by European law, European Union law, and so that suddenly that's being taken away. The question as to where a border goes, how do you control... Um, Animal crossing, (laughs) how do you control trade and dairy and none of these things had been decided in advance of the referendum because Britain doesn't have rules about referendum, um, holding referenda because their, their constitution isn't set up for that. So therefore they could hold something for which they had no structure. But we in Ireland knew that it was going to be chaotic and because it passed, it's been even more chaotic. And it became really clear that one of the things we needed to do was to talk about borders and to talk about belonging. And so with a colleague, Glenn Jordan, we designed a program called Borders and Belonging. We looked at the Book of Ruth and we produced eight um, eight discussion guides, really, for helping communities of faith look at questions to do with borders and belonging, whether that's Irishness, Scottishness, Englishness, Britishness, Welshness, whatever, um, or through the lens of the Book of Ruth and then we published that as a book uh, it came out just earlier on this year called borders and belonging uh, and Glenn it, unfortunately died last year just as we were handing in the script oh,
0: mm. i'm sorry i didn't i didn't realize that mm. um i got to listen in with Padraig uh on a session on borders and belonging uh, last friday friends and it uh it is the most riveting take on the book of ruth that i've ever experienced and um and so i'd encourage you to reach out and uh, and grab that wherever you get your books borders and belonging uh it's worth a read and i think it's especially poignant in this moment in time uh where there all, all of the questions exist around what is a border and what does it mean to belong and mm. uh, and so I, I encourage you to grab that um patrick i obviously we're we're having this conversation in the maybe maybe nearing the the end of um the immediacy of the COVID-19 pandemic? Maybe, (laughs) I put all of that, who who knows, right? Uh, It's been one hell of a year uh, plus 2020 Mm -hmm. and 2021. Um, And so before we we get into a conversation about language, I I do wonder what, when you reflect on 2020 and the first half of 2021, how do you hear yourself reflecting on what this has been like and and what it's done to us, who we've become? Uh, I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, I suppose I find the plural pronouns like we very difficult to conjugate within the context of this because one of the things that the COVID pandemic has sh- shown in, it's not new, it's just highlighted it, that is that there are plural we's, <laughs> there are multiples, there are many, there are legion and that questions to do with being able to work from home, being able to um, use Zoom to, go, to get to work and to communicate with your colleagues or to be able to communicate on a device, et cetera. All of those things are, are predicated on, on having a job where uh, the, your employers care about your continued productivity, where they don't just get rid of you, um, on having access to devices, on having access to places um, of education for your children or support for your children. You know, um, friends of mine have three children, and so there was five of them around the kitchen table, all trying to work all throughout last year. Um, and they had to share computers. They didn't they didn't have five devices, you know, they had w- one fairly patchy Wi-Fi connection. And so trying to figure out all of that and with then people going, come on, just, you know, get another contract or pay for 5G or all of those imaginations highlighted all of these splits that are there. And so I suppose that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um the second thing that comes to my mind is that it does show how much flexibility was was possible when it became necessary. Um, all kinds of places that said they couldn't adapt to work from home suddenly had to had their excuses to not in advance. People might have said, oh, it just wouldn't work or it wouldn't this or wouldn't that. All of those were shown to be resistance for resistance sake. Um, and then I think of the different ways people respond. You know, some people are delighted. Some people with more hermit tendencies are like, my God, this is great. I don't want this, you know, I, I don't want to return back to city life and, or to, to lots of interpersonal life. And other people are falling apart because they, they miss the, the daily communication and the daily random encounters that happen on the bus or the train or on the walk into work. So it's all of those kinds of things come to my mind in terms of how COVID reveals what's already been there and what has already been here are profoundly different levels of experience of society based on to your freedom, based on to the prejudice that you're living under and based too about
0: privilege. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. I, I remember at the very beginning imagining with my team that um, whatever... Conflicts, breaks, divides existed pre-pandemic. Would be exacerbated by the conflict or by the pandemic. Mm. And yeah. I think I think we're here. And yeah, of course, I think that's very obvious. And um, and and thus part of the impetus of this conversation, uh, Padraig is is for the, 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 there's a there's a degeneration it seems in our ability to um, to be in conversation with one another. Um, mm. and to and, and at the same time there's a great urgency for the work of social transformation and and systems change and part of what we've been thinking about as a team is how can we be about social transformation if we don't even know how to tend to this with mm. one another you know and and so i w- one of the one of the gifts of this series really has been um with um, with you and, and others talking about the origin stories uh, of our work as peacemakers and then moving into a specific issue in, in this case language and so I wonder for you Padre, um, as, as you think about your origin story as a peacemaker. Uh, share with us if you would what kind of your journey from awakening to peacemaking to prioritizing it to it becoming a, a way of life.
1: I'm always nervous about the word peacemaking because I don't know, is it made or cultivated or observed or experienced? But um, for me, I I think I had a terrible hunger to belong for a long time in my life. And I I directed that hunger to belong towards friends. I mean, I'm not saying that that was a a wrong thing to do. This isn't a a story that kind of says, and then I realized I belong to God. I don't believe in that binary. So I directed it towards friends and then I also was directing it towards um, poetry, I suppose, as well as directing it towards religion and especially towards religion. I'm Catholic and was very interested in ecumenical endeavors, you know, especially those are so important in Ireland, especially all across Ireland, the capacity for people of Catholic and Protestant um, points of view and belongings to find ways to communicate with each other. and. I'm gay and I had kept that as a secret for so much of my life um up until my 20s really and I I suppose I I was desperately looking quietly for a message to say you're okay from religion and of course I got exactly the opposite message Do you know I got a message to say you're not okay you're devilish you've got terrible things wrong with you you know um At the same time, I was hanging around with a lot of evangelicals who were saying, you're kind of devilish because you're Catholic. And I was like, dear God in heaven, I'm doubly devilish, devilish. gay Catholic. Um, And then at the same time, I was hanging around with Catholics who were like, isn't that great that you're hanging out with all those evangelicals? You can bring them back to the mother church at some point in the future. So I I often felt in between things um, and I had no desire to be a bridge within the context of that. I just wanted to belong. I probably have a bone in my body that has a, a dangerous a dangerous capacity to over-belong. And I think maybe other people are like that too. But one of the complications of my life is that, despite that, I've never found a place where I can. Um, the, the violence towards me from formal religions, being a gay man, eventually after years, just became too much. I just thought, screw it. I'm uninterested in pretending that this has anything to do with religion. And I began to gain more confidence in speaking and gain more confidence to speak to people who said terrible things rather than waiting for somebody who was pretty safe. I I kind of hoped that heterosexual people in the room would speak up, but they didn't. And so I, I began to think, well, I actually am going to suffer for this, but I have to say it anyway. So I began to speak up. And for me, the possibility of that, if you can call that peacemaking, it actually had a lot to do with being accused of being being an agitator. And I have no desire to be an agitator. (laughs) I want to belong too much, but I couldn't. I, I had to speak about something that I was trying to love and that actually was committing violence. And that for me, I think, was a journey towards what might be called peace, because peace is not sitting around having easy conversations. Peace is having profoundly difficult conversations peace is having deeply divisive conversations in a way where you do not use a recourse to threat or violence or dehumanizations or demonization as one of the things that you do as a muscle memory and so peace is often a misleading word because what i'm interested in is argument and argument about what matters
0: Mm -hmm. say more on that Say, say more on that because earlier you said um that uh peace is misunderstood as we all agree and uh and what i've heard you say in the past is uh peace actually requires creative conflict and uh and and so speak, speak to that a bit
1: well first of all conflict is a great thing i'm in conflict with myself you know that's where the poetry comes from you know i want one thing and i want another and therefore inside yourself a moral conversation happens that's an experience of conflict so uh when i you know i heard a very um naive song being sung at various peace festivals here, you know, where there's a line that says, and make all conflict cease. My God, I don't want to live in that world. That sounds like a particularly boring suburb of purgatory to live in a place where all conflict has ceased. I am uninterested in that. What I'm really interested in is where violence would cease. And that is of interest and where conflict can be focused into creativity. Tension is held together on a guitar, tension is held together on a bunch of people who are creative with each other and a bunch of architects designing a house where somebody says this is perfect and somebody goes, actually, no, there's something you haven't thought about. That's an experience of conflict, but the the resulting art that comes from that is so much better. And that's what interests me. I'm not even that interested in conflict resolution. I'm really interested in creativity and what does creativity look like in human community and what are the tools we need to get to go along and to be creative together and the tools we need are capacities to talk to fight to apologize to learn to listen to acknowledge to know what compromise to put up with to name violence for where violence is to step back from the brink of threatening somebody else understanding that tendency in yourself and then stepping back going, it doesn't matter what my tendency, it doesn't matter what my justification is. I, I need never, I should never do this thing or use that language so those are all the tools. Conflict resolution is just a tool along the way to the, the project of being human together, which is a profoundly creative project, whether that's writing poetry, raising a family, working working in development, working in faith, working in industry, whatever you're doing, they're all creative in a certain sense because you're, you're making something happen that isn't happening without the effort. And I'm interested in seeing how can we do that with each other better?
0: Mm-hmm. So listening in, I can imagine that we have several folk who are e- either in interpersonal relationships with families, with neighbors, there are faith leaders listening in who are navigating deep disagreement within their congregations, uh, their college their universities. Many of us, I think, um, have been groomed to understand conflict as a negative thing, as something wrong is happening. It's we're, we're terrified of conflict. My sense is in order to in order to enter into the the create like the creativity and to embrace what's possible, we have to have a shift in our disposition around this thing that is conflict. And so I wonder for you, h- how did that transformation happen and how would you encourage us to enter into a process where conflict can shift from dangerous wrong to be feared to opportunity?
1: Well, I suppose um what what can help is becoming What we might call conflict intelligent, which is to have a few tools for looking at what the quality of conflict is like happening in a room. And that isn't always that straightforward, because I might say, my God, that person over there is being so aggressive. And they might go no i'm just being italian and then suddenly we realize that we've got a a culture um thing happening they might just go i'm being excited actually by me being amplified i want you to be amplified and i might think they're shouting when actually they're not etc or somebody might be saying nothing and i might think my god they're so peaceful when actually they're a small volcano of resentment waiting to explode And so all of these things can be happening all at once. And so the question really is, is how do we talk together about the experience that's going on? And that requires those people who are naturally assertive to find ways where they don't just assume that their assertion is the best way. It also requires those people who are naturally cooperative to begin to speak when they have wisdom, because cooperative people have a lot of information. And the question is, is do you share it or do you hold it back? Um, How do we create an environment where there can be a, a wiser way to speak with each other? How do we begin to plot that? And then also to begin to ask the question about saying, well, look, everybody here agreed with each other. We all talked then you might need to develop the skill of going, yeah, but who isn't here? And maybe they're not here because we've created a situation where they know they're not welcome or they know they'll be shamed or shunned or ignored, et cetera. So it isn't just about the, the the room that's there. It's looking at who's in the room and have we set up the room? Like literally, is the room above, on, at the top of some stairs, have we automatically said, no wheelchair user is welcome here, et cetera. How have we... Um, How have we created a situation where there can be a possibility of talking together and where we begin to be able to create a bit of a map about what the dynamics of communication and decision-making are? Conflict intelligence in that context helps you realise to go, this is really creative, or somebody might go, I hate the argument part, even though I know it's necessary. And just finding ways to communicate within that in order to understand where we're going. And I think that can be a really helpful thing. Uh, But there always needs to be questions beneath it, because what I think is silent acquiescence is not always silent acquiescence. What I think is loud argumentation isn't always aggressive. Um, There can be all kinds of things happening. Um, the questions to do with gender performance need to be asked inside a room. Are we favouring only listening to when uh, a suggestion is being made by a man? So if a woman makes a suggestion, is she being heard? And if you know, and often that can happen in rooms, especially in places of faith and places of peace, where a woman might make a suggestion and she's interrupted, and then somebody else, a man, makes a suggestion later on, and people are like, "My God, that's great!" And the woman might go, "I said that earlier on." Or might go, if I highlight that I said that earlier on, they might think that I'm being aggressive and they might punish me for that. And so there's uh, not waiting for the person who you think should speak up for themselves to do it. Because it's never just about who that person is. It's always about what's the energy that this room holds. And so if somebody else said, actually, that's what she said earlier on and um, she was interrupted. So let's go back to her because it was her idea first and then come to the person who echoed it. They might have something to add to it. It isn't to say that they were doing that deliberately because um, that's what everybody will say. Oh, I wasn't doing it deliberately. I don't care. You did it. It doesn't matter what your intention was. It, what mattered is you did it. And Let's find a way to talk about it. Having that kind of capacity in a room is very exciting because suddenly you think we don't have to be frightened of what we're going to talk about. Hopefully the room doesn't have... Uh, a kind of an argument like that about whether they're going to have their coffee break at 10 a.m. or 10 30 a.m. that would be an exhausting room to be part of but about big conversations the room will build up their capacity for those kinds of conversations about what matters by practicing a little bit on smaller things
0: Mm -hmm. and and I'm hearing uh, in this Padraig yes we're, we're talking about language and the words that we use but but you just in my view lifted up um, in the, the the design of the room the culture that's in the place that communicates as well uh, well
1: that and- is language
0: exactly yeah say say more say a little bit more on that and then i wonder for, for those of us who are listening in who find ourselves in those rooms um you know how, how do we, how do we grow our our conflict competency a little bit like what are some mm-hmm. of the risks we can take in those types of environments uh to to be more liberate, like to liberate. And Mm. um, go ahead.
1: Well, like, one of the things that poetry teaches me is that poetry, the imagination of poetry is often that it's just about fancy flowery words. And the imagination about peace can similarly be the same way. People might think peace is about fancy flowery words. Neither poetry nor peace is about those kinds of words. Um, Poetry and peace... Ask for a profound plainness of of language in order to be able to say what you mean, in order to be able to ask and answer, in order to be able to um, strip away what is unnecessary, say what is necessary and then listen and be able to stand in the tension and to hold that tension. That's a really important thing to do. One of the reasons I don't always like the poetry of the Psalms is that you'll have a psalmist saying, this is terrible and this is terrible. I've got five enemies here and 20 enemies there. And the the mouth of the earth yawns open to, to, to swallow me. And then there's this line at the end that will say, but I will praise you, O Lord. <laughs> and I think there can be an idea in, in places of faith and in certain forms of perhaps more Um, early poetry to think, if I'm describing something difficult, I have to resolve it at the end. You don't, actually. Mm. People are already living with the unresolved nature of the thing. And so the question might be, let's just describe it. What do you see without trying to colonize it into meaning or safety? Because maybe it actually needs to be dismantled rather than, um, you know, rather than made friends with. So that, I think, is a really important um, thing to think about when it comes to language: that language is present in the plainness, in the plainness of words, and the plainness of the things we speak. Now, that is not an excuse to be an asshole. I'm not saying that people should just therefore be offensive. I'm uninterested in that either, because that too is a is a laziness of language. Um, I see that Jeff has mentioned in the comments that peace is not avoiding conflict; it's more avoiding violence. I, I would I would use a, a stronger word for um, violence than avoiding violence. I would I would I would um, say that it's addressing violence or dismantling violence or um, l- l- critiquing and scrutinizing and moving away from violence. I'm I'm sure you meant all of those things in how you described avoiding violence, Jeff. But I, I would push it a little bit to be a bit more specific about how it is that we address violence. For people who wish to learn this a little bit, I suppose one of the things you can do is to think of all the rooms that I'm part of, what's a room where it can, where we can take a little bit of a step together, <laughs> you know? If you're working with a boss who is the world's most insecure person, or you think they are, it, it, that may not be a situation where that's going to be a great room for experimentation in terms of trying to learn. Um If you are a boss and you are known to be particularly assertive in a great way, but where people just know, look, it's your way or the highway, um, you probably will not find it the easiest to say, let's be really creative because you've probably built up a reputation where people know you're not interested in listening, even if you say you are. And so I suppose the question for me is, where is a room in your life where This kind of um, conflict intelligence does work. Or there's a bit of fluidity in terms of how things can go back and forth. And to see in that room, if you can say, can we try some things together? Can we learn? You know, some people might need to increase their capacity for voicing their points of view or for um, engaging in compromise or for asking questions about systemic power, looking at questions of consequence. Um, There's all kinds of courses you can do, you know, most major cities will have a mediation organization that probably have an introduction to conflict. Um, Peter Coleman has the most extraordinary new book out from Columbia University Press in the United States, which is about conflict. I'll give you the name of it at the end. I forget it for a moment. It's the most brilliant um, public-facing book. He's a professor of conflict resolution and cooperation. And uh, it, it is such a helpful thing. Read that book with some friends, you know, and see what happens. Where do you think... Oh, I'm excited by that, or I'm intimidated by that. And then to think, where can I safely practice this? And the more you begin to safely practice, the more you realize, actually, I have a bit more confidence to try this in other places. So much so, like I had a boss years ago in a very religious context who used to say, um, we've got a decision in front of us, and I want everybody to pray over the next two minutes of silence. And do you have yes or do you have no as what God is saying? regarding this decision. And I thought, my God, I mean, I wasn't used to that kind of charismatic uh, approach to things at all. I was very definitely informed by an Ignatian point of view that's about discernment. And Ignatius said, you know, you can't make a good decision between a good thing and a bad thing. You usually try to make a good decision between two good things. And then it's a question of, you know, where do you wish to go? Anyway, but I was really intimidated by that boss in that room. And, you know, sometimes it was really, sometimes I really did have a strong opinion, yes or no. And I would own that and just say, my opinion is this. But eventually I got to the stage where I was going, this does not seem like a wise way to make a decision for me. And one time he said to me, you are the biggest pain in my ass. (laughs) And I would would not have coped with that, you know, a couple of years previous. But, But by the time he said that to me, I was like, that's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing it deliberately, um, but uh, I am telling you the truth that I do not think this is a wise way to make a decision. Mm-hmm. and that was that was a, a growing. But I I grew that because I'd been trying out little bits and pieces of curiosity and not for the sake of being disruptive. That's never going to be creative. The point is, is to say, what's beyond this? What do I, what do I believe in the creative possibility of this group that I'm willing to say, can we have a word about this practice that we've got? Mm -hmm. This style of a bit of bullying, this style of a bit of intimidating, this style of avoiding something, because I think it'll help us in our creative output, whatever the output is. Mm Whether that's an assembly line in a factory, whether that's a group of people who work together in a church, it doesn't matter where it is. Every group of people have a creative output in front of them. And the question is, is can we let this creativity be creativity? Or is it going to have unnecessary elements of aggressive control?
0: Mm-hmm. I'm aware uh, in this conversation how of, of the dynamic of power. right? In And what I mean by that is some of us have been groomed into the system to understand ourselves as... Powerful, dominant, and a manifestation of that is rigid certainty and uh, and uh, rigid slash aggressive certainty. And others of us have been groomed into the systems that we find ourselves, um, and their their lived experience. Our lived experience has been being silenced, um, being pushed to being displaced, being disappeared, being pushed to the margin. And so, try as we might, it, it doesn't feel like we've made any any headway toward a creative alternative because power exists. Yeah. I wonder, how, how, how do you interact? How do you understand the reality of power in all of this? And how do we work to dismantle that so that we can actually have creative conflict?
1: You know, I, I wish I had a good answer. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for years. And uh, I think most people who work in any group dynamic, whether that's in group therapy, in um, group discussions, whether that's working in trade unions, <laughs> that's working in government groups, are always looking at how can we pay attention to power. Some people want to pay attention to power so they can manipulate it. Other people wish to pay attention to power so that they can totally dismantle it. My opinion, and this is my opinion, is that power is neither positive nor negative. The question is, is how you use it? Um, I'm uninterested in a powerless society because I think power can be used for great good. So I'm interested in the question of power being accountable and power being fluid, either not just held by the one kind of person or the person with the particular with, you know, the, the person who found it easy to go through university, etc. power can be seen to coexist in multiple places at the same time. And the question is, is, how do you pay attention to that? How do people with power begin to recognize that power is best when shared? And how do people um, communicate that? There can be a profound um, immaturity, I think, in in an escalated um, yelping towards power that, you know, for some people, they seem to think that, you know, you've only got a limited amount of power. So therefore, if you have it, you need to protect it and grow it. And that, I think, will usually cause violence somewhere down the way to yourself or to the people who are unfortunate enough to work with you or even worse, live with you. And so I, I think there does need to be an examination of power and there's all kinds of ways to look at it. You can look at an examination of power through a close reading of the biblical text of the, um, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian texts are really brilliant. And I think that might be uh, helpful for folks in this room who are interested in religious leadership um, to pay close attention to Jesus of Nazareth's relationship to questions to do with power. The different gospel writers portray the Pharisees in different ways, and the Pharisees must not be understood as having people with automatic power. The Pharisees were extraordinarily committed people. And in Matthew, certainly, Jesus of Nazareth was a Pharisee. His question, his, his, his assertion wasn't don't be a Pharisee. His assertion was be a better one. And so there's a, a thing that we need to pay attention to about Jesus of Nazareth's relationship to power. He was not afraid of conflict. He was pretty uninterested in mediating at times, because he was really interested in asserting certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think John A. Powell's question about um, who decides, who wins, who pays, those are three questions that he uses. He's a constitutional scholar from the United States, Mm -hmm. and he asks three questions of power, who decides, who wins, who pays. And I think those are three very, very insightful questions to ask. And if the answer to all of those things um, is very predictable, well, that's probably really worthwhile Um, having some accountability for that power, having an outside power. When it comes to the police in the north of Ireland where I live, the police here are considered to be the most accountable police service in the whole world. They're called a police service here rather than a force anymore that was changed, and they were fundamentally reformed as part of the process of leading us to a peace agreement. And the police here are policed and that is not to the detriment of the police. There is an independent office called the Ombudsman's Office that polices the police and are there to be independent scrutinizers and arbiters of the question of policing. And that is by no means perfect, but it's pretty good. <laughs> I recommend to other places where police are not policed because that is only going to increase the possibility for safety. We understand that. Um, maybe a little bit more paperwork and red tape that's okay paperwork and red tape are not the devil it's a pain in the ass but we all have to do it Mm. and so there's ways within which um I, i think it can be really worthwhile to think to use your imagination to think about how a scrutiny of power is worthwhile trying i worked with an organization once that had been really keen to be seen as a feminist organization but actually most of the most of the committees of the organization had men as the as the chairs of the of the committees nobody was paid in this context it was all voluntary and um people said well no woman has applied so therefore you know it's not like we're against it it's that we're um just no woman applied and so the question was to take it a bit deeper to say great there's no ideological opposition to this fantastic maybe there's a structural opposition what times did we put down um that were required because it might have been that any woman who looked at the time requirement or the particularity of the time requirement thought, well, that just wouldn't work with my, with my job. That wouldn't work with my other commitments. And so I said, well, let's just take it a little bit deeper to look at how power is being communicated, not by intention, because the intention is to say, oh, everybody's welcome, but actually by the practicalities, because that too is a manifestation of power because I can easily make it that there's only a certain kind of person can apply for a job. All these codings you can put in that say, do you know what? You'll stand a really good chance if you apply for this, which other people will read and go, nah, no way in hell would I get that. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not written for people like me. Mm-hmm. And so those are questions to do with power.
0: Let, let me sink down now to the, the microcosm of words and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the late rabbi, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel says the words create worlds, and um, and they also destroy them. And uh, in lo- a lot of my work in the Middle East, I hear frequently that words create alternative realities, mm-hmm. and um, and so I'm I'm wondering how you think about words themselves and the power that they have to create or destroy.
1: I think the original poetry of the Hebrew Bible demonstrates a a particular fascination with the power of language. Um, the, The poets who wrote Genesis 1, for instance, put language into the mouth of the God character there in a way to say that they too were reckoning with what is created when you call something something. And you see that in Genesis 1, in that poem of the seven days, the, the things being created and then, then then being named. You see it echoed too in the Genesis 2 poetry, where there's questions to do with these things that are being created. And one of the primary things that I see within those poetries of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is a kind of an anthropology of the human person being put forward, not a creation, not a scientific, not even a sequential approach, but something that is trying to create an understandable echo of the human being trying to talk about itself and trying to talk about what matters, agriculture, language, trying to figure out how to categorize things, trying to understand where you can work, trying to understand why people die in childbirth. All of those questions really are being wrestled through and they're being wrestled through with language because language is not just a declaration. Language is the thing that might help us understand, will this kill us or will this help us to live? And that is a really important thing to understand. Anybody who's taught a child how to speak or who has raised a child and the child teaches themselves by osmosis, you'll understand that you do try to teach categories. Hot, for instance, dangerous, tasty poisonous all of these various things that are broad categories and you see the obsession with categories in the poetries of genesis 1 2 and 3 to understand um cunning to understand rules to understand breaking the rules to understand curiosity all of these magnificent layers that are there and these go beyond individual words for things, but the ways that we categorize things within the context of words. Now, that might be something you want to break or to reinforce. People will argue about that. But there is something interesting for us about the nature of categorization that it has categorization normally happens through forms of language. And that is a really important function. And as a result of that, I'm really interested in how. You know, for instance, after nine eleven, very, very quickly, I heard all of these international um, groups uh, who were trying to say where the goodies and they're the baddies. The word terrorist suddenly became um, loaded in a way before and there was a race to name who's the terrorist and who's the goody. You know, that was a form of categorization. And for people who wanted no more than a headline regarding Russia and Chechnya, for instance, regarding all kinds of other places, if you only went to go, oh, they're the terrorists, grand, I don't need to think about it anymore. You know, turn them into a parking lot. I heard that being said once. And I thought that is a clever manipulation of the human fascination with categorization and language is used for that. A friend of mine, Marie Howe, is a poet and she was taught by the Russian exile Joseph Brodsky um, when he was teaching in New York City. And he said to the Americans in the classroom that their imagination of evil needed to evolve because he said, you think evil is going to clomp in here to the classroom with big big black boots and announce itself, you know, hello, I am evil. I'm here to destroy everything good in the world. He said, no, evil will always start in the language. And so like, when you look at the ways within which we categorize people, they're bad people, they're non-Christians, they're non-Catholics, they're not proper people, they are the infidel, they are the unbeliever, they are destined for hell. These two are categorizations that religious groups very, very quickly use to speak about the in and the out. And so suddenly we're not just talking about you know, the imagination of the Adam and the Eve and the garden as these proto-imaginations of people trying to categorize, we're suddenly talking about how does your religious group speak about people who aren't in your religious group? Even more, how does your religious group speak about people who have left your religious group? Or how do you speak about the people who want to join? How do you decide if they will or if they won't? all of these things are projects of language projects of projects of imagination, imagination and projects of categorization and it's really worthwhile within this context to populate your language with brave questions to say who decides why why are we saying that about these people how do we know why are we making a fact when actually that's an opinion and that i think is a really helpful project and it will cause agitation and that too is the work of peace
0: mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm struck by, as you bring up Genesis 3 and, and this idea of categorizations, it seems to me that like the, the phenomenon of fabricating fables emerges there. You know, a Thank thing you. happens and we begin to fabricate these fables and make one another severe and may, even make the, the divine severe in that case. Mm-hmm. And then you said like the way out of our own fabricated fables is brave questions. And uh, so what I wanted to... to lift up and, and to inquire with you, Padraig, is there's the words that create fables. There's the words that reinforce hope and goodness. Um, all of that is good. What we don't talk about a lot when we're having conversations about language is the power of listening. And, um, and so from your view, there's, there's the asking the brave question. And then there's also the practice of listening. Um, help us understand how you do the work of listening. And, and listening long, you know, not just not just to see if there's points of resonance, but the kind of listening that's transformative for you. How do you do that?
1: I am struck in being interviewed, how little listening I'm doing and how much talking. <laughs> so uh, I just want to name the irony of this here <laughs> for anybody who is being struck by the irony of a, a talkative Irishman talking about listening. Um. I suppose listening in a context where I'm mediating a conflict or where I'm in a conflict can be a very difficult thing. Um, In order to listen well to others, you have to learn to listen well to yourself, sometimes in order to be able to suspend your reactions. Somebody might be saying something, my partner's name is Paul, and when Paul and I disagree, I recognise that because I love him so much that actually disagreements can be really agitating, and I can find myself amplified in my responses you know and what's the importance in listening to myself to go i want to interrupt him and to listen to that to go how do i respond to my desire to interrupt and um how do i listen to him what's the quality of his listening going to be like that's a very small example but it's intimate And that's one of the things about conflict is that even with people at work, conflict is intimate. Even with somebody who's being an idiot on the bus to work, conflict is intimate because you feel like your personhood is being violated sometimes, even with a small conflict, never mind a large one. And so as a result of that, I think it can be really important to pay attention to the intimacy of your experience of conflict. If you're being put in on safety, well, then to find a way out of that. But in a situation where your body is telling you you're being you're in unsafe, when actually you're just arguing with your spouse or your best friend or your sibling or your child, or your colleague, and you need to go, I need to not interrupt. I'm not unsafe. Um, my body's just in a flight mode or a fight mode. I need to find a way to listen to that in order to be able to hear them. Because one of the things about conflict is, is that often in conflict resolution. A major, major burden is to get the people who are fighting to agree on what they're disagreeing about, because regularly people are disagreeing about totally different things. And so simply by saying, what, what are you, why are you saying what you're saying? And, and why are you saying what you're saying? It's not that people will necessarily find that they agree on everything, but they might begin to go, oh, I thought you were saying that because you thought I was lazy. And I thought that was your message. And the other person might go, my God, no, you work far too hard. It's not about you being lazy. It's that I think we need to move our work in a different direction. They still might disagree, but something will have been moved in terms of their capacity. And so whoever felt like they were being accused of being lazy, it won't just be that they felt that in that moment. It'll be an echo of hearing that at school or from their friends or at home or their own self accusation. All our own chaos can suddenly open up and finding a way where we can listen enough to feel heard can be a really, really helpful thing in order to have more fruitful disagreements. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it brings me very, very, uh, in, a micro, in a microcosm way into my most intimate relationships where there's conflict, right? And, and in that space, um, I feel the urgency when, when the When the iron is hot, I feel the urgency to demonstrate my rightness and to try to convert them, which is an act of violence, into my into my train of thought. And, and so so often I hear in these conversations, people people are wondering what's the right thing to say? How do I position my my thought or my argument or perspective in a particular way? In, in fact, what you just said is it, perhaps the most important work that we do is listen to the thing behind the thing. To understand, like, if we're going to understand what they're saying, we have to listen deeply to the thing behind the thing, which, in my view, calls to question pacing and how do we how do we center ourselves and maintain a pace in the midst of the conflict, such that I can be self reflective, I can take Mm -hmm. a minute, I can remember that I actually value this human being. I might disagree with their perspective, but I value this human being. You know. So speaking very practically, Padraig in the pace and the rhythm of, of a conversation h- how do you do that kind of work um what's it well, that like will
1: be you? very in, that will be very individual um because um that's cultural too you know i know that i have a voice that people say is a gentle voice and so therefore people might hear me talking about going oh you should be like that that's not true you should be yourself and find a way where you can be yourself. I am utterly uninterested in tone policing. If somebody's angry, angry is fine. The question is, is what are they doing with their anger? Are they being violent with it? Are they being threatening with it? That's uninteresting. Anger has to be understood as one of the basic or basic approaches to the human experience. And so I I think that has to be something again where we hold multiple intelligences to go. Like there's probably a friend of yours where you are really happy to interrupt, where the two of you have these great arguments about religion or art or movies or music. And at the end of it, you come away and feel like that was so much fun. And both of you feel really enlivened and you can move back and forth. That is a demonstration of love and vivacity that doesn't need to be told. No, you two actually need to disagree about your music choices in a quieter tone of voice. You know, know, shut up (laughs) we need to have a great argument about that. But I am so conscious when it comes to arguments that really matter in society, that one of the things that can be done is somebody can say, I'm going to curate this argument and I'm going to set the tone. And that can be often culturally based, gender based, privileged based. You can say nobody's going to use any bad language, okay? I love strong language, but the implication is: is who gets to decide what is bad language? Do you know, if somebody says, um, if somebody says uh, something like uh, the uneducated, to my mind, that's swearing. You know, mm. I, I'll use any kind of word that rhymes with truck. I don't want to offend the ears of your listeners um but uh talking about the uneducated to my mind is phenomenally terrible language bad language and so who gets mm. to decide that just because they're not so-called swearing um or cursing or however you describe it you know you you can tone police in a way that is actually about privileging a certain manifestation of culture and so the question is is how can we have the the babble of all of this together, and still in the middle of that, understand that there is the possibility of spirit and chaos having something creative to say to each other.
0: Padre, w- would you? There's one question from Adriana that I just think is really great. She says, Has there been a degeneration of our capacity to have conversations, or has the number, nature, and type of voices who are now speaking increased and gotten louder, and as a result, has revealed a need? to adjust for those who have always conversed together. How would you interact with that?
1: Um I I'm I'm always anxious about anything that implies that there's anything particularly special about today. Um like recently I read the Epic of Gilgamesh which is a 4000-year-old Babylonian text where there is a a despot of a character called Gilgamesh and the gods decide to punish him by giving him a best friend, grief and a midlife crisis. It's the most extraordinarily contemporary question about um, dismantling uh, a certain performance of male addictive power. And that's 4000 years old, so (laughs) I suppose I, I am fairly uninterested in thinking that there's anything new today. I am interested in thinking, what's the new manifestation of the underlying human condition, which might be about dominance, which might be about how difficult it is to listen. All of those things are very old. Um, sure, we've got new technologies, but Augustine of Hippo was addicted to going to the theatre. He loved Netflix binges. That's what he was interested in. He had a, a, a powerfully addictive life. And so I, I'm i always interested in finding a way to not be distracted by thinking that today is anything new. And actually, there are poetries and psychologies and narratives and prayers and sacred texts that have been circling around the conundrum with which we live for millennia.
0: Good, good. Mm-hmm. Well, my friend, thank you for the time and Pleasure. being with us. I want, to, I want to give you the last word uh, to this crew of aspiring peacemakers. How, how would uh, you bless us, challenge us, encourage us?
1: Well, I just put in um, Peter Coleman's book, The Way Out, that was just published this summer with Columbia University Press. It's, it's a really good book. I would honestly think if you want to increase your capacity in terms of having some language and science about these things, because he's a social scientist, read that book with some friends. You'll love parts of it. You'll not like other parts of it. You'll agree with some. You won't understand other parts. Great. Do all of that and still read it through. It's magnificent. Um, I'll finish with a poem. It's a collect God of silence, who watches our growth and our decay, who watches tsunamis and summer holidays, who cares for the widow, the orphan, the banker, the terrorist, the student, the politician, the poet, the freedom fighter. We pray to be nurtured in our own silences. We pray that we might find in those silences truth compassion, fatigue and hearing, because you, you, you see all and are often silent. And we need to hope that you are not inattentive to our needs. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, Patrick.
1: Nice to be with you. All the best, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to episode five of the Restoring Friendship bonus season. For more information on the work of Global Immersion and how we develop everyday people into everyday peacemakers, visit us at globalimmerse.org. Special thanks to Embers, our community of monthly investors who make the Everyday Peacemaking podcast possible. Music for this episode is by Scott Holmes. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and mastered by our good friend, Kip Jones. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Friends, God's restoration is happening. Join in it and know that you're not alone.